1: not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of Seventh Generation. Find Seventh Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at SeventhGeneration.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition Diva podcast. I'm your host, Monica Reinagel. And today, we're going to poke some holes in the oft-repeated advice to consume lean sources of protein. But first, I also wanted to share some questions and some comments that I received in response to my recent episode on the risks of alcohol consumption. Steve, who is a long-term listener and also a medical doctor, wrote me to point out that all-cause mortality, which is the statistic that was measured in the Global Burden of Disease study that I was talking about in that episode all-cause mortality is only one way to evaluate the potential harm of alcohol consumption. Alcohol consumption may increase the risk of non-fatal diseases or disabilities or other harmful outcomes, such as the loss of a job or a relationship. It can also increase the risk of harm to others, as with alcohol-related automobile accidents, domestic violence, or sexual assault. And as Steve writes, the psychological trauma and other adverse outcomes of this alcohol potentiated behavior are not covered in this study. And he's absolutely right about that. Whenever you're using statistics to assess your own risk, it's really important to pay attention to which outcomes are and are not accounted for in that analysis and how closely the studied population matches your situation. So this new analysis that I was reviewing does offer a more nuanced look at how drinking patterns affect life expectancy across different regions of the globe and age groups. But these data do not include non-fatal outcomes or the potential impact of your drinking patterns on others. So thank you, Steve, for pointing that out. Noah sent a question that I frequently get regarding guidelines for alcohol consumption. So the guidelines for low-risk drinking are expressed in terms of drinks per day. So one drink a day for women and two drinks for men. But what if you only drink on the weekends? Noah writes, I'm not proposing that seven drinks in one night and nothing on the other six days of the week would be equivalent to one drink a day. But what about two, three, or even four drinks in one night and nothing else throughout the week? How would that compare in terms of health risks to drinking one drink every day. Okay, so the low-risk drinking guidelines are largely based on epidemiological data, such as the Global Burden of Disease Study that we've been talking about. So they presumably reflect the risks of typical consumption patterns, and drinking little to no alcohol during the week and then having a few drinks over the weekend is a common pattern. However, having multiple drinks in one day is going to have a bigger negative impact on your body than having one drink each day, even if the total amount you consume during the week is within recommended guidelines. The CDC defines binge drinking as more than four drinks on a single occasion for men and more than three drinks for women. So I think a reasonable definition of low-risk drinking would be to not exceed the weekly recommendation and, and never to have more than four or three drinks on a single occasion. And of course, you'd also want to refrain from driving or other risky behaviors while you're under the influence. And now let's turn our attention from drinking patterns to eating patterns.
1: not speaking from experience. Let nature do its thing so you can feel confident doing yours. That's the power of 7th Generation. Find 7th Generation laundry detergent and fresh lavender and other scents at SeventhGeneration.com.
2: So what is a good diet made up of? Plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, lean sources of protein, and healthy fats— You've probably heard this litany so many times that the words almost fail to register, but I want to zoom in on that term lean protein. What does that actually mean? The official definition of a lean protein is one that has no more than three grams of fat per ounce. So that would include skinless chicken, ham, and pork tenderloin. Salmon or peanut butter, on the other hand, would not be considered lean proteins, But does this idea of lean protein really make any sense? Is leaner protein necessarily better for you? I can't tell you how many times I've heard experts extol the merits of lean protein and then go on to list salmon as an example. It just goes to show how mindlessly we've come to use this term. So what does lean have to do with health? Part of this may be a holdover from the days when we considered fat to be the enemy. Most of us have now realized that although we do need to ensure that our calorie intake is appropriate to our needs, we don't need to strictly limit the amount of fat we eat. In fact, replacing some of the refined carbohydrates in our diets with healthy sources of fat can actually be a nutritional upgrade. The Mediterranean diet, for example, is quite a bit higher in fat than the diet recommended by the American Heart Association, but is actually linked to a reduced risk of heart disease as well as diabetes and obesity. The emphasis on lean protein is also probably a throwback to a time when dietary protein was largely synonymous with meat. Leaner cuts of meat were thought to be better, and not just because they're lower in fat, but also because they are lower in saturated fat. Because if fat was the enemy, saturated fat was the devil incarnate. Today, we also have a more balanced view of saturated fat a moderate amount of saturated fat in the diet is absolutely fine, perhaps even preferable to a diet that contains no saturated fat at all. And I'd also like to point out that not all of the fat in meat is saturated. About half of the fat in red meat, for example, is actually heart-healthy monounsaturated fat. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a cut of meat that's a bit higher in fat as long as it fits into your total fat your saturated fat, and your calorie budget for the day. If you had eggs and bacon for breakfast, well, then maybe you'd want to go with a leaner source of protein for dinner. But if you started the day with steel-cut oats, then a less lean choice might be just fine. Now, some protein-rich foods that are higher in fat, such as fried chicken or pepperoni, are foods that you might want to limit anyway, but not necessarily because they're high in fat. Fried foods, for example, tend to be high in HNEs. These are toxic compounds that are formed when polyunsaturated oils are repeatedly heated or held at very high temperatures. And you know, most restaurants not only fry their food in polyunsaturated oils, but they reuse that oil over and over again. Cured meats like pepperoni and ham are high in nitrates and nitrites And when they're combined with protein, these can form toxic compounds in the gut called nitrosamines. And that may be why diets that are high in cured and processed meats are linked with a higher risk of colon cancer. But I want you to remember that the dose makes the poison. It is okay to enjoy fried foods or cured meats every once in a while. I just got back from New Orleans and I definitely enjoyed some fried chicken while I was down there. But these probably aren't foods that you want to be eating every day. And here's a fun fact. Eating lots of fresh vegetables can help neutralize the formation of those nitrosamines in the gut. So if you are indulging in some cured meats, don't skimp on the salad or the crudités. Judging meat strictly by its fat content can also lead to some ridiculous conclusions. A serving of salmon has three times as much fat as a serving of ham example, but the fat in salmon is in the form of heart-healthy omega-3 fatty acids, while that lean ham is very high in salt and nitrites. And finally, we are being encouraged to seek out more plant-based sources of protein these days, such as legumes, seeds, and nuts. While legumes are certainly low in fat, nuts and seeds are up to 80% fat and could hardly be considered to be a lean protein. But here's the thing. We don't eat protein, we eat food. And most protein foods are going to provide a mixture of protein and other nutrients, such as fat or carbohydrate. But more to the point, most of our meals are going to contain more than one food. So when we're evaluating the nutritional makeup of various foods, we really need to take the whole diet into consideration. If you get a lot of your protein from legumes, for example, You're also going to be getting quite a bit of carbohydrate in the mix. So you might not have quite as much room on the plate for grains or starchy vegetables. If you get a lot of your protein from nuts and seeds, on the other hand, you're going to be getting a lot of fat along with it. So you may not have quite as much room in your meal plan for avocados or whipped cream. And if you enjoy cuts of meat or types of fish that are relatively high in fat, you might not have quite as much room for nuts or high-fat dairy. But I really think it's time for us to retire the notion of lean protein. How about you? If you have a comment on today's episode or a question you'd like me to answer in a future episode, you can email it to me at nutrition at quickanddirtytips.com. You can also leave me a message at 443-961-6206. Also would love to invite you to check out my other podcast, It's called The Change Academy, and my co-host, Brock Armstrong, and I talk about the art and science of behavior change. You can find it on all the major podcast platforms. Nutrition Diva is a Quick and Dirty Tips podcast. It's audio engineered by Nathan Semes with script editing by Adam Cecil. Thanks also to Morgan Christensen, Holly Hutchings, Davina Tomlin, and Cameron Lacey. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.